Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Well, I decided, my, I, don't, I don't really decide anything anymore, or at least for the last 11 years. Um, but my wife decided that we should get married on May 12th because it sounded pretty. And um, she didn't, no one told her until we went to register for flowers, uh, that that's Mother's Day weekend. So we celebrate Mother's Day weekend and we celebrate our anniversary every year. So I, we're also on a budget, you know, because we got kids coming out of our ears. And so we decided that uh, we would spend a, a very low amount of money. She puts me on a budget about $100. And I, got a, I had $100, I said, what will Stephanie want? What will declare my love for her as my wife? What will she appreciate? And I said, I know what I'll do. I'll do something I absolutely hate. We went horseback riding on Friday morning. The worst experience sitting on a horse for one hour. But I smiled the whole time. We had a nice time. We celebrated our anniversary yesterday by sleeping. Our kids were over at Nana's house. Thank you for that. Claire is in here this morning. Hi, Claire. She frowned when I said that. <laughs> Let me just cover a couple things before I get started this morning. Number one, the Connect class is this Saturday. I'll be teaching it. It's a three-hour, one-time, one-time course. If you're looking at becoming a member of our church... You have to first complete the Connect course. Um, it's not a course like at college. It's a, actually a really fun time where we simply tell you about who you're coming to covenant with, who you're coming to be a part of. And we are a body. We are an organism. And we have certain traits. We believe certain things. And we have a certain mission and vision that God has given to us. And we want to take that time to explain that to you. So I want to encourage you to come on out. I believe it's at 9 on Saturday, 9 a.m. on Saturday, and we'll have a, a continental breakfast. So you might want to stop off at McDonald's. I'm kidding. Stop at Burger King. Um, and come on out, please. Now, the other thing I just want to say is it, you don't, we would like for you to register with Rose, uh, my secretary, and you can get our telephone number online. But I really, really, if you, if you don't, uh, know whether or not you're going to become a member or you want to know a little bit more about our church, just come. Anyone can come. Anyone can come. It's free. You'll get some material. You'll get some uh, continental breakfast, and we'll have a very nice time. But you can learn about our church. And so it's not required. Um, it's, you don't have to. This doesn't mean that you're going to be a member after this Connect class. It is just a place for us to really talk about uh, together where we're going as a church. The other thing is there may be some of you who've been here for a long time. You say, I've been here for 30 years. Well, you should come out uh, if you want to have a better idea of where we're going as a church. This is a wonderful opportunity to do that. Next, Kathleen said we do VBS for free. She's right and she's wrong because nothing is for free. Someone has to pay. And I'll start by saying the people of this church pay with their sweat equity. They will roll up their sleeves and we will be here for two weeks. 
All of you can contribute to VBS in one way or the other. So if someone always has to pay, well, those who pay are us as a body. There are going to be probably around 100 kids here, many of whom do not go to this church, but are local neighborhood kids. Now, maybe you don't, uh, uh, aren't, aren't very comfortable yet with sharing your faith with others, this is a wonderful way for you to begin the process of, ev of evangelism by simply supporting it, either financially or with your sweat equity. So there's a way to pay for this. You can pay with your service, you can pay with your time, or you can pay with your dinero, your cash. And God has given you one of the three for sure. So this matters. This matters to me. It matters to Christ. If we say as a church that our focus, our goal for our children is to raise them up, that they love God and they love his church, that they love Christ and love his church, then all of us need to contribute to this. Happy Mother's Day, mothers. You are a godsend to many of the children here. I am glad to see many people here today with their mothers who don't normally come. I am certain of this. One thing that will be the best Mother's Day gift in all the world is for you to love Jesus and his church. I promise you that. I am certain that your mother wants you to love Jesus more than anything else. We're going to begin our fourth sermon here on the basic Christianity of knowing God. The first one was an introduction. The second, or an introduction to theology. The second sermon was the holiness of God. Or the Holy Lord. Our third sermon, which is the second point, would be our Sovereign Lord. And finally this morning we're at our Covenant Lord. We learn that God's holiness means that God is above and beyond us. He is transcendent. He is holy other. If we're to know anything about God, it's required that God tell us who He is. What He wants. And how we can worship and serve Him. But not only that, God is sovereign, Lord. There is nothing in all of the universe that is outside of his grasp. God controls everything from the greatest to the least. And even, yes, even, your salvation is of the Lord. God is sovereign, Lord. Today we're going to talk about the way in which God relates to his creation through covenant. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, you are holy. We come before your throne by grace. The grace that you've given to us through Jesus Christ. None of us purchased anything for our salvation before you. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory. But you've given us a free gift, your son. And so we stand before you just this morning just to say thank you, to praise you. There is nothing more glorious than you. God, take out of our mind all of our worldly pursuits this morning. Let this be the one time a week where we focus on you. Lord, many of us leave here and won't think about you some until next Sunday, others for months, maybe others for years. 
But Lord, for this moment, for this hour, let us focus on you. Let us think about you. You have not made us to worship your creation. You have made us as part of your creation and given us a derived dignity by your very breath, by your very image. We are nothing but dust. The very glory that we have, what it means, the dignity to be a human being, comes from you, Lord. If we want to know what it is to be human, we must first look to you, Father. Because to be human is to reflect your glory. Lord, in this moment, in this hour, let us begin to understand what you have done by your covenant. That you, a holy God, would enter into a relationship. A binding relationship with mankind. Nothing but dust made in your image. You are a most holy and gracious God. Even after we broke that covenant, you are a most holy and gracious God. You are the God who seeks after his people. As we run astray, you are the shepherd who runs after your lost sheep. And so we just praise you in this moment. Father, thank you for mothers. It was your will to give to us a nuclear home, a father and a mother. You, Lord God, are both one and three. You are one in essence, as you told us, the two shall become one flesh. But you are diverse in person. You are Father. You are Son. You are Holy Spirit. Each one of you have your own role. You are equally God, eternally God. In our homes, we reflect that glory. We are equally man. We are equally human. But we have our different roles. Today, we thank you for mothers. Where would we be without mothers? Their gentle touch, their care and their grace, their concern for us, the way they give their life for us, the way they provide for us. Father, thank you. For in mothers, we see your goodness and your glory. Thank you for our fathers. Help our fathers to reflect your glory as well. We thank you for the home. Let us now raise up Christian homes for you and for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's get right into it. What is a covenant? The word covenant comes from the French word covenir, meaning to agree. And it also means to assemble. We don't use the word covenant a lot today. We use words like agreement or contract, especially in a capitalistic world. We use the word contract. We agree to give our labor in return for money. And we use that word contract. It's a very common word today. But the covenant is a different type of relationship. It is an agreement between two parties who have not merely agreed on something, but have agreed to be together, to assemble. The most perfect example here in this world that I can give to you is the covenant of marriage. The covenant of marriage is meant to be a covenant between one man and one woman before God. That's the definition of marriage. Let me give that to you one more time. The covenant of marriage is meant to be between one man, not many men. One woman, not many women. 
One man, one woman before a holy God, and it is meant to be forever. Someone asked Stephanie and I at dinner last week. I love this. This was, this was great. They asked Stephanie and I, how did you do it? 11 years, how did you do it? Stephanie said a lot of booze. I said, that's a joke. I said, we did it because Christ was at the center of our marriage. Christ is the Lord of our covenant, of our marriage. God means for us to be with him forever. And I understand today that many of us have seen in our marriages the severing of that covenant. Let me say this, that's never good. It's bad, always bad, because that's not what God intended. But it is a part of living in this world, and I understand it. But as God's people, let us strive for something better let us strive in all of our covenant agreements to be like him. But the good news is, God knows one thing about human beings. He knows we're covenant breakers. And he knows that he's a covenant keeper. And so praise God for being the covenant keeper. But a covenant is an agreement between two parties that establishes the parameters of their relationship. This ring right here on my finger means Stephanie is the only girl that I get to love and have affection with. She's the only girl I get to have. And the ring that she wears means that I'm the only man that she gets to have. And that we are sacred and set apart for one another for all times. And not just with my hands and with my feet, but with my heart, with my eyes, with my mind, I am to be completely devoted to her as a reflection of God's devotion to us. She is to be completely devoted to me as a reflection of Christ's devotion to his church. Covenant is an agreement between the parties that establishes the parameters of their relationship. Today, we hear of, and we've heard of for quite some, uh, quite some time, the concept of open marriages. Many people enter into marriages thinking that they can have open relationships with other people. But a covenant has parameters. And those parameters must not be transgressed. Once those parameters are transgressed, that means to go beyond them, the covenant is severed. You see, this is a serious thing. We're talking about our covenant relationship with God. In theology, the word covenant means this. A covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of the relationship. We must acknowledge that if we're going to have a relationship with God, it happens on His terms. It happens on His terms and not on our terms. Notice that it says it's a divinely imposed agreement. There's, there's, no, there's no thing, nothing that we can do in the covenant of creation. God made man in His image to glorify Him. And any time, any time that we 
as a human being, fail to image God and to reflect his nature, to live like God lives, to be holy, to count our lives as holy for him, we are failing to live and do what it means to be a human being. You cannot be a true human being Listen to me, you cannot be a true human being if you do not glorify God correctly. You say, but what about the human beings who have their own religions? Are you saying that they are not glorifying God? Not truly, not fully. That's what I'm saying. What kind of Christian church would this be if I didn't argue that the only way to glorify God is through his son, Jesus Christ. This is God's covenant. Another theologian says that covenants in Scripture are solemn agreements negotiated or unilaterally imposed. That means it's one direction that bind the parties to each other in permanent defined relationships with specific promises Claims and obligations on both sides. The word I want you to focus in on on this particular definition is the word unilateral. Because if we're going to have a relationship with God, we have, or He has to have it, or condescend, come down to us in order to have a relationship with Him. It's very popular today to find different ways that we might come in contact with God. Some people will smoke marijuana in order to have a sense, a greater sense of God. Some will drink peyote. Some will starve themselves. Some will uh, enter into orgies. Some will do. These are, yes, these are all types of ways that human beings will try and have out-of-body experiences to ascend to God. But the only thing I can think of is it's like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You can't go any further. There's a fan that's getting ready to devour you. You cannot reach to God all on your own. You must go to God on his terms. It is a unilateral negotiation. He enters into the agreement with us. What those people are seeing when they see what they think are angels of light is nothing other than demons. No one will break into heaven. No one will break into God's throne room. There is only one way into God's throne room. Through the shed blood of of Jesus Christ. You cannot enter into the throne room of God. He must come to man. He sets the parameters, the stipulations, and the sanctions when we break that. In a covenant structure in the Bible, there are several types or several parts of a covenant. Usually a covenant follows with a preamble. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Exodus 20 really quickly. And I'll just read the first couple of verses to give you an example of just what I mean. The preamble simply means the introduction to the covenant. Why are we doing this? 
we have a preamble to our Constitution. It simply states the purpose of what we're doing here. Many of us think that the President of the United States is the one who runs the country, but the, or, but the bylaws of our country are the Constitution. It's not even the three branches of the government. It is the three branches of the government insofar as they follow the Constitution. That Constitution is a covenant between the citizens of the United States and the government of the United States. There is a responsibility that we have and that they have. And it begins with a preamble, but so does God's covenant. And the first, the way that God's covenants usually begin is with a preamble. Here's the preamble to the covenant. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God. Does anything else need to be said? Why should I obey you, God? Why should I have no gods before you, God? Why should I not murder? Why should I not steal? Why should I remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Why? Because God is the Lord. You know, your mom and dad, well, we'll, we'll use moms. Your mom used to say this. You'd say, why am I going to do that? I don't want to do that. And your mom would say, because I said so. In a very real way, she was saying, because I am the Lord. And if you don't believe I'm the Lord, you're going to be screaming the Lord's name when I pull out this belt and whip you in your rear end. Because I said so. The covenant agreement between God and man begins with God putting a very emphatic period. I am the Lord. He needs to give no other explanation. When he revealed his covenant name to Moses, what did he do? Moses was in a burning, Moses saw a burning bush. That was all the explanation he needed. A bush was on fire and it wasn't being consumed. How can that be? Because God is the Lord. When the children of Israel finished their covenant, when Moses spoke the words, when God spoke the words, and Moses was there giving the covenant to the children of Israel, the Bible says that they were far off from Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. They were far off, and they could see the smoke around the, the, the mountain, and they could hear the thunder and see the lightning. And after the words were given, the first thing they said to Moses was, Please give us a mediator, someone who will go between us and God. We cannot see this again or hear God's words again. We will die. You know why there was smoke around the mountain? Because the mountain was on fire. God spoke to the children of Israel in a burning mountain. He spoke to Moses in a burning bush. And he says, this is why you follow this agreement. Because I am the Lord. He is the Lord of judgment. None of us, none of us will shake our fist before his throne. He is the Lord. All that he does is good and right and true. But then it begins with a historical prologue. He does good things for his people. 
He says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? So it should be enough that because he's the Lord, we follow his covenant. But we follow the covenant not only for that reason. God is a gracious God. The historical prologue says, look at what I've done. Look at my grace for you. I brought you out of Egypt. I heard your groanings when you were crying. I heard your voice. I saw your sorrow. I saw your slavery. I brought you out. But then he gives stipulations. And a stipulation, another word for a stipulation, is a rule or a commandment. The first one is this. You shall have no other gods before me. God states, he is the Lord he is the good God of grace. Have no other gods before him. And then he gives sanctions. If you look down at the verse 8, this is the first one that comes with a sanction. There are sanctions for others, but this is the first commandment. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Bible tells us why and how we ought to follow him. But perhaps a better example would be this one. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, you shall not bow down to graven images or serve them, for I am the Lord your God and I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, if we don't follow God's law, there is a sanction for that. God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the generations that follow. He holds them accountable who place their faith and trust in other gods. But to those who love him, to those who put him first, he is a blessing to thousands. These are the sanctions of the covenant. If you break the law, there are consequences. If you keep and obey the command, there are blessings. It's very simple. There are oaths and there are vows. Here, the oaths and the vows are, I will be your God, you will be my people. And then finally, there is the ratification. And in the covenant here, the Mosaic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant begins with the covenant of circumcision. It is an example that sets a particular people apart, that they belong to God. We see then that the relationship between God and man is one of God condescending to man and entering into a relationship by which he is bound to his own word and man is bound to the word of God. What is the goal? 
It's not just to be willy-nilly. That, you know, sometimes we think the Bible's just full of rules. It's not a rule book. There's a purpose here. There's a goal in mind. It is that God will have fellowship with human beings. That we will dwell together. But in order for us to dwell together, we must obey God. Think about in your own marriages. When someone has broken the covenant of the marriage, how can the two dwell together? The first thing they do is leave the house. When the covenant of marriage has been broken, immediately the two separate. They can't be in the same place together. And the covenant goal is that we would be with God. That we would be his people. And the God of heaven and earth would be our God. And the bliss and in the blessings of his glory. Well, there are three covenants that I want to talk about this morning really quickly. The covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is a covenant that takes place between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity past. This covenant is an agreement between or amongst the Trinity, and it happens from before the foundation of the world, before God ever even created the earth, before he ever made the first star, before he ever grew the first tulip, before he ever made the first salamander, God entered into a covenant, a covenant of redemption from before the foundation of the world. This covenant is between or among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an eternal covenant. All parties are equal, and it is a most effective covenant. What do I mean? I mean this. I mean that the Father gives the Son. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son, that whosoever should believe on his name will have everlasting life and will not perish. But before the father gives the son, the son voluntarily submits to the will of the father. God knows that the moment he begins to create, that this world is going to fall. And the persons of the Holy Trinity of the one God agree before the foundation of the earth that they will redeem fallen sinful man. Look at what Hebrews 10 says. Hebrews 10, 7 and 9. It's one of my favorite passages in scripture. Jesus says this. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In the Old Covenant, God 
mandated that the Hebrews take the best of their flocks, the best of their fruits, and bring them to the temple to be offered up as a sacrifice, an atonement for sin. It was the bloodiest, we don't think about this, the temple was the bloodiest place on earth. Bull after bull, sheep after sheep, ram after ram, dove after dove, laid out, cut up, devoured on an altar. Blood was everywhere. And they had to do it moment. They had to do it daily. They had to do it monthly. They had to do it annually to atone for their sins. And it was ongoing. It never stopped. More and more animals, more and more death, more and more blood, more and more burning, more and more atonement. And the Bible tells us, why is this happening? It tells us that God never, never intended the animal sacrifices to last forever. He desired something more. And the Bible tells us that the son voluntarily submitted to the will of the father. God desired a perfect sacrifice. A perfect human sacrifice. A perfect human and eternal sacrifice that only Jesus Christ could fulfill. But not only that, the Holy Spirit is involved in the covenant of redemption. The Holy Spirit fills and empowers the church all for the glory of Christ. One of the major problems in churches today, is, especially churches that are called charismatic churches, is the way that they praise the Holy Spirit. Not that there's anything wrong with praying and glorifying the Holy Spirit, but to understand the Holy Spirit is to understand that the Holy Spirit and the Father give all glory to the Son. It is not to make a spectacle. The Holy Spirit is not David Blaine. The Holy Spirit is not... Give me another magician. David Copperfield. For the older people. He's not... Com Some of us go to churches to see, a, to see the Spirit. We, we go, we want, to see the, we want to see the Spirit. We want to see a miracle. Jesus said, wicked and adulterous, wicked and adulterous generations demand signs and wonders. What have you come here today to see? A miracle? I watch Channel 45 from time to time. When I'm feeling down and I want to laugh, I turn on Channel 45. And there's some guy with his coat off, and he's throwing his coat around, and people are falling down, and that's supposed to be the power of the Spirit? That's not at all what the eternal covenant of redemption says. The eternal covenant of redemption says this, that the Spirit was sent to man that they would be his witnesses. Whose witnesses? Christ's witnesses. You want to see where the Holy Spirit is? Look for the name of Christ to be proclaimed. There is where the Holy Spirit is. You want to see the Holy Spirit? Look for his fruit. Is there self-control? Is there patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, joy, love, peace. There is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to empower you and I to speak and proclaim Christ. Not to heal you of your cancer. You know, the greatest work that the Holy Spirit might ever do for you in your life is give you cancer. Because it might be the first time you ever share the gospel with someone. I see it happen all the time. When people know that death is imminent, they get focused on what matters the most. Do you know the Son? That's where the Spirit really shows His power. The Spirit glorifies Christ. Acts 1.8 I will send my Spirit and you will be my witnesses, even to the ends of the earth. Well, why was this covenant of redemption necessary? The covenant of redemption was necessary because of man's inability to keep the covenant of works. Scripture tells us from the very beginning to the very end of the Bible that it is not within man to keep God's covenants. It is not possible. I will have conversations at this very table with people who will tell me they're good, they're good enough, they've done enough, they're a good person. And Scripture says it's not within you to be good. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who is good, no, not one. No one even seeks after God. It is God who seeks after us. And the reason why the covenant of redemption is necessary is because no one can be saved all on their own. The Bible says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Think of the imagery. Think of a dead body. You've seen when people flatline and they have to give a jolt of electricity. Does the corpse on the table begin to tell the doctors what to do? No, he's dead. He depends on another to make him alive. Scripture called this new birth. Did you do anything to be born? No. But God made us alive when? When we were dead. God must redeem us or we will never be redeemed. You're thinking you're going to heaven today on your own account and the Bible says nope. We have to have God redeem his people. The reason why is because there was a covenant of works initially in the garden. God formed the man from the dust of the earth and he breathed life into him that he might reflect God's image in perfect obedience. God made a lot of other creatures, but only man is in covenant with God. We're the only ones in covenant with God. When a lion kills a zebra, it's not called murder. I know some of our ladies think it's murder. It's not murder. He's just eaten. Of course, none of us think twice about it when we're eating our burger, but we let somebody else do the killing for us. It's not murder because they're not made in the image of God. We, as God's image bearers, are in covenant with God. 
some, I, I, whenever I go to the zoo, I find the chimpanzees and the primates to be the most interesting. I love to look at them because they look just like us. Don't, I mean, more or less, you know, some more than others. But you know what I mean? Like they're, they're sitting there and they're, I, I, I love the gorillas. They're amazing. They have a, a social network. They can talk, you know, they'll sit there and they'll sign, they'll, they'll, they'll move their hands and they'll do all kinds of neat things and people will throw them an apple and they'll eat the apple and they'll lay back and they're exhausted and they'll, they'll look there and they'll clean their fingernails. It's just so cool. And people will look at that and say, we must have come from them. And I see one major distinction between apes. You know, people are impressed with the DNA number, the 98%, more than 98% similarity. Yeah, that's fine. They don't bear the image of God. Isn't that obvious? Isn't that obvious? When a posse of chimpanzees devours another tribe of chimpanzees and rips them limb for limb and bites their fingers off and tears their jaws from their face and eats the inside of their face, that we don't call them guilty of murder? Why? They don't bear the image of God. They're not in covenant relationship with God. It's so obvious. We are. When we do it, you must be brought to justice. God formed us very specially and breathed his life into us and gave us his image. We reflect his glory. We must be holy. Why? For God is holy. And why are we here? That we might reflect God's image in perfect obedience. So God formed the man from the dust of the earth and he put man in a deep sleep and he formed woman from the side of man. The Bible says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Follow the covenant here. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now there is nothing wrong with eating fruit. But there is something absolutely wrong when God says don't do it. It's the same, just on a much smaller and in a finite way, the thing that happens when you break the covenant that your mother made, when she says, don't take a cookie from the cookie jar. You might ask her, well, why'd you make them? Mama, you know that's not right. You can't be making delicious chocolate peanut butter cookies, making them before dinner, and then tell me I can't eat them. So you go in there and you open it up and you sneak the cookie and you eat it. There's nothing wrong with eating cookies. Mama made them for you to enjoy. Right, Mom? That's why you made them. Because you love your children. Listen, you love your children. You want to see them happy. And you've given them toys and you've given them all kinds of beautiful things that they might enjoy those things. And you've just made a simple command, don't do this. And what's the first thing we want to do? We don't, we have never desired anything in the world like that cookie that was just forbidden. Moms, you know how to get your daughter to date the guy you want to date, you want her to date? 
tell her you love the boy she brought home with the snake tattoo on his throat. Oh, he's a nice boy. I love him. Oh, they're going to hate that boy. Because what we want, what we desire is the thing we've been told not to have. Why? Because we're sinful. The commandment comes that the sin, the reality of our sin, might give itself an opportunity to be exposed. The covenant of works begins with God unilaterally acting, taking the man and the woman and placing them in the garden. This is the good act of God. How do they know God? He is the Lord. He has made them. He has put them in the garden. What a gracious and loving God. Here he establishes the stipulations and the sanctions both explicitly and implicitly. Here explicitly he says, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. There's the sanction or the stipulation and the sanction. Don't eat of the tree. If you do, you die. How hard is that to understand? But implicitly, if you don't eat of the tree, what will happen? You will live in blessing. No oaths, no vows, no ratification are necessary here because Adam and Eve have only the option to obey or disobey. They don't get a third choice. God gave them one of two options. Either you follow me or you reject me. That's it. No third option. You will either be my children or you will be my enemy. You will either be the recipients of my blessings or you will be the recipients of my wrath. But you will be one of the other. And we know the rest of the story. Adam and Eve rebelled against God by breaking his covenant and fell from their covenant relationship with him. What happened on that day? They were separated from God forever. There was a chasm between man and God. The first thing that we hear, it's dramatically expressed to us, is that God is in the garden and he's looking for Adam and Eve. They're hiding from God and God says, where are you? God hasn't lost them. It is simply a story technique to show that the fellowship they once had is now gone. Where are you, Adam? And what do we do when we're in sin? We hide. That's why most of us don't come to church. It's not that church is boring. Listen, if church is boring, that's your problem. You hear me? I'm going to say that again. If church is boring, that's your problem. I know I'm not boring. I know I'm not. Because it's not boring when someone tells you you're going to hell if you don't receive Christ. That ain't boring. That's anything but boring. You can say you're a jerk. You can say I hate you, but you can't say I'm boring. This isn't boring stuff. God says you die today apart from Christ. You spend eternity in hell. That's not boring. But what do we do? It's not about boredom. You're hiding. We all hide from God when we're in sin. 
It is a terrifying thing to be before the presence of God when we're not under the covenant of redemption, when we haven't been redeemed by His grace. We're separated. So how then can we have fellowship with God again? The Bible tells us there is a way. He gives us a covenant of grace. God must redeem man by his grace. Well, how did he do that? If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Romans 5.12. And look at this. Romans 5.12. We're going to look at 12 through 21. Up until this point, Paul is telling the world that if they want to be justified, they have to all be justified the same way. Justified means if you want to be put back in such a way that you can enter into the house of God to be with God again, you have to be made right. It says here, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. What is sin? Can I, can I give you a definition of sin? It is not doing the wrong thing. That's not sin. Sin is break... Listen to me. I want you to remember this definition. It's very important. Sin is not doing the wrong thing. Stop, stop saying that. Sin is not the immoral thing. That's not only what it is. Sin is the breaking of God's covenant. It's simply breaking whatever God has told us to do. That's sin. Some say today, I don't like God's, I don't like what God has said about this marriage thing. I don't like that. I think two people, as long as they love, or three people, or four people, as long as they love each other and they're consenting adults, that's completely fine. But that's not your call. Sin is breaking God's covenant. Why is that wrong? Because God says what? I am the Lord because I said so. You're not the Lord. And he is. And he determines what is right and what is wrong. And the Bible says that sin came into the world through one man. We know what that sin was. He rejected God. And death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Paul is saying that every single human being is under the headship of Adam. God has imputed to you when he saw Adam's sin, he has said, from now on, all are guilty of Adam's sin. All of us. And of your own. Sin entered the world through a man. Death through sin, that's the consequence why? Because all have sinned. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who came to come. Paul's saying there, they didn't have a specific command not to eat of the tree, but they had the law of God written on their heart. In the second chapter of the same book, he says, For when Gentiles do by nature the things of God, which was written on their heart, they show that God's commands are on here. They're on his heart. They know. You say, that's not fair. 
That's not fair that we all have to suffer because of what Adam did. Okay, fine. If you say that, then you have to say the next one's not fair too. Because here's the next one. But the free gift. All gifts are free. But just to make sure you understand how free this gift is, the Bible calls Christ a free gift. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So if it's not fair that we inherit all the sin, if, if what Adam did on our behalf as the head of all human beings, if what he did brought us death and you say that's unfair, then I would agree and you have to say that the next one's unfair, that Christ and all of the works that he did on our behalf are now imputed to us as righteousness. Now you have to say that one's unfair. Truthfully, neither of them are unfair. One of them is grace. The other one is justice. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You have two options before God. Will you be in Adam or will you be in Christ? In Adam, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. In Christ, you are alive. You have received the free gift. There is no other option. In, in Adam and under wrath or in Christ and in the blessing. The final goal here of this covenant the covenant of grace, which was sealed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The final goal here of this covenant is told to us in Revelation 21, verse 3. When all is said and done, when God returns to the earth to redeem his people, those who are under the shed blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ, those who have said by faith, Count unto me the works of Christ, not my own works, but Christ's works on my behalf. This is what the Bible says the goal of this covenant is. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God has always wanted to dwell with man. He has made us, he has made the heavens and the earth to dwell with us. And because of our sin, because of our rebellion, we have separated. But today, God offers to you, God offers to you 
an opportunity to come to the Lord for salvation.